0: To the Northwest Politicast, I'm Jeff Podula. This week, knocked out Congresswoman Jamie Herrera-Butler, one of the 10 Republicans who voted to impeach former President Donald Trump, is primaried by a 2020 election denier. How it happened and the chances the Democrats may now have of taking the seat. Plus, Alex Jones gets his comeuppance and his own lawyers may have done him in. The fall of Roe v. Wade is starting to affect medical conditions beyond just pregnancy and the rise of white supremacy on social media. But we begin with a political shocker out of Florida in Mar-a-Lago, where the FBI raided the home of former President Donald Trump. And then on Friday, we learned what exactly the FBI was looking for. This amid political pressure from Republicans who say that the FBI and the Justice Department has become an arm of the Democrats. Joining me now is ABC's Dave Packer. And first off, this was an unprecedented move. Law enforcement raiding the home of a former president looking for for documents that he may have taken from the White House illegally.
1: Right. And they say that they, uh guess, you know, had tried earlier. There was a visit in June. First, the documents were requested. Uh, there was a visit in June where the FBI was basically shown around. In fact, President Trump uh, met some of the folks who were, who came To that visit, I guess we can call it, Um, and the president at that time claimed, or the the president's lawyers had claimed, they they gave them material. The Justice Department and FBI had reason to believe that there were more documents that were being withheld, and uh, we got a sense with the release of the warrant, uh, not just what they were looking for, but what they're investigating um, to investigate potential crimes, according to the documents associated with violations of the Espionage Act. And, and that talks about the unauthorized retention of national security information. In fact, of 11 sets of documents that were pulled out by the FBI, there were several top secret which are supposed to be only viewed uh, by a very small number of people associated with with the government uh, and, of course, in government facilities. And uh, the release of these, uh, by definition, would be extremely harmful to national security. So we are seeing federal agents execute this warrant, the, the Justice Department believing that they didn't have any choice when they found out about What was potentially there.
0: Speaking of the sensitivity, we're also hearing some of them had to do with nuclear weapons systems.
1: Yeah. So there are reports in The Washington Post is reporting that these were documents that were related to uh, nuclear weapons or the the U.S. nuclear weapon program. Uh, ABC News has not confirmed that. But certainly what we do know is that there were some very sensitive, high-level documents. It may turn out that that's the case, so we'll have to wait and see.
0: So why did former President Trump have these documents? Because this is something we've heard before, that they were supposed to go to the National Archives, but instead he kept them for himself?
1: Yeah, and now you're getting into the, the armchair uh, psychiatrist sort of thing. Why does he keep these things? I, I mean, among, among them, there, there was information about the president of France, uh, maybe a dossier about the president of France. We don't know what was there. He kept the clemency documents for Roger Stone, who he uh, pardoned. We we don't know why he was keeping that, maybe as a souvenir. But certainly some of these other documents that are top secret, um, not the kind of thing that you would uh, want to frame and, and put in your office after your presidency. These are things that really um, are not supposed to be seen except by uh, a precious few. So why he kept these We really don't know.
0: So were law enforcement officials afraid he might do something with these documents because we're hearing about potential violations of not only the Presidential Records Act, but obstruction of justice and even the Espionage Act?
1: Well, I don't know if there's any intent on that. And it's hard to say. But I mean, in, in having in just in possession of these documents... Uh, is is not legal now we probably will hear some sort of a defense that as president uh, he declassified these documents but there is no process noted there, there's no record of this declassification other than maybe him claiming that he waved a hand over them and said I uh, that you're now declassified but that could potentially be uh, a gray area that Trump's defense lawyers tried to take advantage of.
0: What's been the reaction on Capitol Hill? Because the Republicans this past week have been highly critical of this raid, And now we know what the FBI was looking for. We know what they pulled out, at least some of what they pulled out of Mar-a-Lago. Has there been any reaction from lawmakers?
1: Yes, you're right. Leading up to this, there there has been um, uh, indignation about this, uh, that uh, this is un- unprecedented uh, and and should have never happened. And they should have asked the president and surely he would have Complied to any requests. Uh, the the Justice Department is saying that wasn't the case. After the release of this, we we haven't heard too much from Republican lawmakers as they uh, weigh the uh, sensitivity of the documents that there were that were found.
0: This also sounds very familiar because in the 2016 campaign, President Trump went after his opponent Hillary Clinton for having that private email server.
1: That's correct, and and the the claim at the time it was that there was classified information on that server. And certainly Republicans have been comparing that to this. Did those documents rise to the level uh that these documents rise to? I I I don't think that was the case. I think it's going to be considered a matter of degree, um how serious a breach, how how important these documents were that were in Mr. Trump's possession versus how serious and, and how sensitive the documents were. That were on that email server.
0: What kind of a penalty could the former president face as a result of this? Because as he's now a private citizen, he's no longer immune from lawsuits or anything like that.
1: You know, under normal circumstances, these these certainly could warrant jail time. Now, these are not normal circumstances when you consider that this is a former president of the United States. And certainly, like uh, we mentioned before, he's going to be making claims that these documents were not classified, and uh, by virtue of him possessing them, uh, it's not a crime. Uh, you can expect those sort of arguments. Uh, it, it's hard to know, and 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 so much of this is uncharted territory where we've never really had this happen, where an ex president has taken these documents with him. So yeah, it, it's it's hard to say. You could envision. Uh, somebody pressing for jail time for something like this, but I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to say that that's going to be the case. There's a lot that about this investigation that we still don't know, even with the release of this, that the Justice Department is keeping quiet on. So we'll have to wait and see.
0: All right, Dave Packer with ABC News in New York. Thank you so much for your time. All right, Jeff, take care. We have to take a quick break, but when we come back and look at what happened in Southwest Washington State, where a longtime Congress woman has been fired by her constituents when the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogelay and this is what I get for going on vacation during the primary. We see one of the 10 Republicans that voted to impeach former President Donald Trump Voted out in the primary, Jamie Herrera-Butler, Republican from the 3rd Congressional District down in Vancouver, was defeated. Joining me now is Paul Query. He is editor and writer for The Washington Observer. And this one really came as a shock.
2: I had sort of assumed that Jamie Herrera-Butler would squeak through the primary because there was sort of a crowd to her right. And Joe Kent, who ultimately wound up finishing second in the primary, You know, he's a sort of recent transplant from Portland, which is generally a little bit of a kiss of death in southwest Washington. Folks down there really look askance at the city across the Columbia, but- Ultimately, that vote against Trump really cost Jamie Herrera Butler her base in that in that district,
0: and she was one of two from Washington State. The other being Dan Newhouse over in the fourth congressional district, but he ultimately survived, which I would have thought that he would have gone down before Jamie Herrera Butler went down, given the makeup of the of the two congressional districts.
2: Yeah, and I think that it has to do with the sort of star quality of the challengers. In that case, I mean, the most prominent challenger to the right of Newhouse was Lauren Culp. And Lauren Culp is kind of damaged goods at this point. And the national Republican money, for the most part, kicked the tires on him and decided they weren't really that interested. Kent, meanwhile, got kind of a lot of um, sort of Trump aligned money for his campaign. And he has just sort of a little more. Compelling story than than Culp does.
0: Well, to be clear, Joe Kent is an election denier. He believes that Donald Trump won the 2020 election.
2: Yeah, he's a conspiracy theorist. You know, there are lots of reports of him consorting with various unsavory figures on the far right. One of the things that this result has done is kind of make the instant contender out of Marie Glusenkamp Perez, the Democrat, who's a political newcomer. And had she been up against Jamie Herrera-Butler, I think she would have been kind of a non-starter.
0: So how much of a chance does the Democrat have here now that Jamie Herrera-Butler, the incumbent, is out and and you've got this far right guy and Joe Kent coming
2: in? You know, it's still kind of a tough race for Democrats. That district was made safe for um, Jamie Herrera-Butler in the round of redistricting, the redistricting that happened in 2011. um, And they didn't really change that very much in last year's redistricting process. So it's a, you know, it's a Republican district. Herrera-Butler won most recent narrow election there was in 2018, which was a big wave year for Democrats. And Herrera-Butler won by 5%. And in 2020, she won by almost 13%. So that's a tough district for Democrats to run in. And in this primary election, Kent, and Heidi St. John and Vicki Kraft, who all ran to the right of Jamie Herrera-Butler, got about 42% of the vote. Marie Glusenkamp-Perez got about 31% of the vote. And that means that if you extend that to the general election, the Democrats need basically all of Jamie Herrera-Butler's voters to win. Kent really only needs about a third of them. I, I should point out that the general election electorate is not the same as the primary electorate. You have more swing voters more persuadable voters, fewer partisans who are married to one side or the other. But it's still going to be kind of a tough lift.
0: Obviously, we're not expecting this one to be as competitive as the 8th Congressional District, which is kind of right down the middle at 50-50. But this certainly puts the race on the map.
2: Yeah, and I think that there'll be a really interesting uh, set of developments in the coming weeks as the national money and the national party committees decide whether they want to play in these races. Kent is so far to the right. It's pretty antagonistic to the Republican establishment. There's some question as to whether they care whether he gets elected or not and whether he gets that kind of support. And then on the Democratic side, I think that the Democratic money, the House Democratic Campaign Committee, whether they actually decide that Perez is worth the investment to get in. So, you know, I think TBD, TBD, I know that there are some polls going into the field and a lot of research being done about, you know, whether the, the race is winnable for Democrats. I think we'll have to see how, how that, that race shapes up. I, I agree it's not as structurally close as the eighth is. Um, but I think that Kent's victory really kind of tosses it up in the air a little bit.
0: One of the headlines I read this past week was the GOP hurricane forecast in November of 2022 has been downgraded. A lot of reasons are given for that, uh, most notably abortion rights, some of the more social issues that Republicans have been going after, whether it be gay rights, LGBT issues, that sort of thing. Uh, does that sort of environment kind of help the Democrat in this district, Marie camp perez Because I'm guessing we're going to see a lot more money and a lot more polling come into a race here where it's never seen that before.
2: Yeah, I think that Democrats took a little bit of a flyer on Carolyn Long in 2018 and put some money and some resources into it. Um, But, you know, she fell short and they weren't really there for her as much in 2020, but yeah, this, you know, you really have to look at it as a, a winnable district for Democrats in 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 this situation. And in Washington, some of those issues that you just mentioned might resonate more than they would in other parts of the country. So
0: what do we know about the Democrat Marie glusenkamp Perez?
2: Well, she's a fourth-generation Washingtonian with, you know, some legitimate working-class roots. Um, she lives in Stevenson, which is in Skamania County, which is kind of a rural part of the third district out well outside of Vancouver. Um, she's got uh, one of the knocks against Joe Kent was that he was a carpetbagger from Portland. And Perez has a little bit of that um, aspect that she might have to deal with. She went to Reed College, which is about as Portland as you can get. Um, and she and her husband operate an auto repair business that's actually in Portland. Um, So I think it'll be interesting to see um, how they, you know, kind of grapple with those issues. Now, let's
0: shift gears a little bit over to the 8th Congressional District. It seems pretty shocking to me that Reagan Dunn, the Republican King County council member whose mother held the seat, didn't even move on
2: out of the primary. Well, there was a fairly concerted effort um, to keep him out of the primary. There was a pack funded by some prominent conservatives in Washington that really attacked Dunn for his past problems with alcohol. They were backing Jesse Jensen, who also didn't make it out of the primary. But really, they were concerned on kind of a broader level about Dunn being vulnerable in the general election and that dragging down Republicans elsewhere on the ticket. And I think that that, you know, they were able to to be pretty successful there. And I think you had a situation where Jensen and Dunn and their supporters were kind of duking it out. And Matt Larkin, who ran a, you know, pretty disciplined campaign and put a lot of his own money into the race, you know, kind of slid through. Now, clearly Dunn had the larger name recognition in the race and Jensen had the advantage of having run against Schreier two years ago and really, you know, doing pretty well. But it's not clear to me that Larkin doesn't represent a you know kind of generic conservative alternative to Schreier that might be just as effective as either one of the other.
0: So with the fact that it's Larkin in, instead of Reagan Dunn or Jesse Jensen, does how does that change the the calculus for for the general election? Are the Republicans more likely or less likely to take control of that seat?
2: Well, I don't think that the people who had doubts about Dunn were wrong in terms of that he was somewhat vulnerable um, in the general election. That said, he did have high name recognition. He's been on the ballot out there a long time. His mother represented the 8th District for many years. So, you know, he had that going for him. I think it's mostly a question of whether Larkin will attract the kind of national support um, in terms of direct money and then independent support by super PACs aligned with the Republican minority in the U.S. House, whether he gets that kind of support. Because what he needs is name recognition and, you know, the ability to get his message out. And I think that if he's got the resources behind him, you know, that problem will fix itself.
0: Even so, over on the east side of the state, we we look at the fourth congressional district in, in Dan Newhouse. He was the other one that voted for the impeachment of Donald Trump, the second go around. He had a significant challenge. It looks like most of the Republicans there fell short, which seemed kind of surprising considering the name recognition that candidates such as Lauren Culp had and maybe even state lawmaker
2: Brad Clipper. Yeah, And I think that that was a real case of vote splitting in that there was such a crowd to Newhouse's right. The voters who were unhappy with Newhouse's vote didn't really settle on a candidate to, to kind of take him out. And that really allowed the Democrat to slip through the primary. Um, and I think that Newhouse isn't going to have much trouble disposing of the Democrat in November.
0: Well, in in true Lauren Colt fashion, he has yet to concede and is leveling accusations of malfeasance and vote stealing as well. Once again, how much of this has, has he burned his bridges with the Republican
2: Party? You know, there's not a lot of history of politicians losing badly twice and um, showing any kind of viability in the future. And
0: taking a look at some of the other races, whether it's Congress or for the state legislature, we also saw some some surprises there as well. But for the most part, the incumbents kind of held their own.
2: Yeah, there was a lot of pre primary spending by Republicans and Republican aligned PACs to try and identify some weaknesses among incumbent Democrats in the legislature. And we didn't see a lot of success for Republicans there. Um, And when there was at least one pretty notable failure in the 47th district, um, which is a swing district in South King County, surrounded, um, sort of centered on Kent and Covington. There was a House seat where no Republican actually even got out of the primary. They were There were three Republicans and they divided the vote and the Republican who was sort of most viable in the general election wound up finishing dead last in the primary.
0: Well, that kind of speaks to, I I think, the the broader issues in this cycle here in Washington state. We've heard so much about nationally that this may be a Republican wave year, although that's tempered quite a bit. It's still going to be a very tough road to hoe for Republicans to take control of the state legislature.
2: I I think that's true. And I think that looking at the primary results, that seems like a very difficult path for Republicans to take either the Senate or the House. I mean, you you have incumbents who are getting, you know, 53 percent in the primary um, in kind of key swing districts. And there's just not a lot of history of incumbents who got 53 percent in the primary losing in the general election. So
3: if you're a Republican
0: strategist, where do you focus your money?
2: I think you really want to look at a handful of places. You look at the 44th district which is in Snohomish County. You look at the 42nd district, which is up in Whatcom County. You would look at there's a, house, a vulnerable house seat in the 10th district, which is Whidbey Island, Whidbey and Camino Island. There's a push to try and take back some of the house seats in the 5th district, which is out in East King County. That used to be Republican territory, but it's been Democrat for the last few cycles. So there's some opportunities. But at this point, really what you're looking at is shipping away at the Democratic majority rather than an actual takeover.
0: And if you're on the Democratic side, how do you protect those majorities in Olympia?
2: I think that you're seeing a lot of um, focus on um, the Dobbs decision and issues of abortion rights and abortion access. Um, A lot of the Republican challengers in these key districts are anti-abortion. And I know that folks on the Democratic side think that that's a real advantage for them. People are fired up about that particular issue. And it's going to be difficult for an anti-abortion candidate to break through this year.
0: To kind of wrap up, taking a look at the results, whether it's for Congress or the state legislature here in the primary, how does that sort of affect the crystal ball for the general this november
2: um i think it's you know I, I really think it's pretty cloudy here because of what we talked about a little bit earlier the premier Electric, uh, electorate is different from the general electorate um you get a lot of partisans on both sides who vote in the primary and most of the swing voters and the people who are undecided about what they want don't really show up until november And so we don't really know where we're going to be vis-a-vis high gas prices, inflation, the general state of the economy. We just don't really know how that's going to shape up until we get a little closer to the general election. I mean, I think there's some things that we can look at that aren't going to happen. I think it's really unlikely at this point that either chamber of the legislature changes hands. But I think it is still somewhat likely that Democrats lose seats in both in either or both chambers. It's certainly still possible that Kim Schreier loses in the eighth district congressional race. And I think that it is possible, although not particularly likely, that that um, third district seat changes hands.
0: All right, Paul Query, editor of the Washington Observer, thank you so much for your time and insight. Happy to be with you. We have to take another quick break. But coming up, Alex Jones, the far right talk show host and conspiracy theorist, gets taken out by his own lawyer when the Northwest Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula and joined now by ABC News legal analyst Royal Oaks. And we wanted to talk to you, Royal, about Alex Jones. He is the conspiracy theorist, talk show host out of Texas who denied that the Sandy Hook massacre ever occurred and was sued by families of the victims. Now a jury has ordered Jones to pay the victims nearly $50 million and that could be just the start. So what's going on here?
4: Well, what's happening is that Alex Jones, after the Sandy Hook massacre, of course, uh, expressed the opinion that it was all faked, that the the kids were actors, nobody was really hurt, and it was just a plot by the government to set up a situation where, oh, guns are bad, we're going to take your guns away from you. So the family members, at least three families, uh, sued Alex Jones for defamation of character because he was calling them liars and an intentional infliction of emotional distress. And Jones refused to hand over his financial documents. And because of that, the judge decided that he had no right to contest these charges, these claims at a civil trial. So the civil trial that was held recently resulted in about a $4 million regular damage award and a $45 million punitive damage award. So uh, that's just the first family. Two more families are going to go to trial against him in Texas and Connecticut in the next several months. So he could be looking at some more gigantic awards. uh, the uh, The jury in this case clearly felt Uh, that he had uh, gone way past the line in violating these families' rights.
0: When you talk about defamation, that's a very subjective
4: term, isn't it? It's subjective, of course, in the sense that uh, defamation of claims that you made a statement that was false it was a lie it was intended to harm somebody it was intended to hurt their reputation brand them a liar uh, and as a result if it's established in court by a jury that your statements alex jones statements that no the massacre never really happened if it's established that those defamed the injured the reputation of the family members then he's liable for you know who knows how many millions and so that was the pattern of this case uh, the lawyers convinced the the, ju- the jury uh, that Uh, a huge verdict was warranted
0: one of the other shocking things that we saw in this trial was this idea that his attorneys accidentally handed over the entirety of his cell phone records what was going on
4: there very weird. So during the lawsuit, the uh, both sides have a right to ask the other side, hey, give us all your documents, your texts, your emails pertaining to the issues in this case. And Jones supposedly did hand over some material, but not too much. So then by accident, his lawyer, Jones's lawyer, sent to the lawyer for the family everything in Alex Jones's phone in terms of texts and emails over the last two years. And what do you know? There were a bunch of texts in there related to Sandy Hook That Jones had said he did not have. So it shows that he lied. And we don't know exactly how volatile or provocative those texts were. But we know that they were all handed over to this one family's lawyer. And of course, the other two families are going to trial in a few months. They're going to have an opportunity to see that as well. And the weird part is the lawyer for Jones didn't even say, hey, judge, give it back. It was a mistake. It was privileged. He didn't take the steps to contest it, so there might be a little malpractice uh, action going there in terms of rights by uh, by Alex Jones against his lawyer. But it's just a very weird development.
0: Would he be able to get a new trial due to ineffective counsel?
4: You know, it's not really viable in a civil context. In a criminal uh, context, yeah, sometimes that'll fly. You you go to the appellate court and say, "Oh boy, my my lawyer was asleep the whole time." But in a civil situation, it's not going to fly. the fact that the lawyer didn't make um, the right arguments just means Jones has a right to sue his lawyer for malpractice, but it does not mean that Jones has a right to a new trial.
0: So when this idea of, of handing over all of these, I guess, quote unquote, documents, the entirety of his cell phone that shows that he did talk about Sandy Hook, he made statements when he said that he didn't. Does Alex Jones now expose himself to charges of perjury?
4: Absolutely. Uh, To the extent that he said in court that that white is black and it turns out that no white is white, Uh, perjury is a very rare charge. Maybe a half a dozen uh, convictions in a a year for the entire nation, but this is a pretty blatant case, so it's very possible uh, given who Alex Jones is, not the most popular guy, uh, Yeah, prosecutors might consider bringing perjury charges, so he could be out not only $50 million, he could be out uh, a conviction and maybe have some jail time
0: how unusual was it to see this happen in court on camera because i mean just watching the lawyers the prosecutors present this to alex jones on the stand was just a shocking development
2: 12 days ago your attorneys messed up they sent me an entire digital copy of your entire cell phone with every text message you've sent for the past two
4: years it really was I mean you know <laughs> the old Perry Mason TV show idea where the, the clever defense lawyer gets uh, somebody to break down and tearfully confessing in court that just doesn't happen that that's fiction but this was not fiction this really happened and it's just a very bizarre unexpected development and again you know, I think it was probably the lawyer for Alex Jones uh, dropping a stitch and not really doing everything he needed to do because when he uh, when he realized that uh, there was a problem that he He'd accidentally handed the stuff over. He should have taken steps and said, Your Honor, I asked for an immediate return of this. This was an inadvertent mistake. We shouldn't be punished. My client shouldn't be punished for my office's clerical mistake. Uh, it was privileged, but he didn't do that. And as a result, uh, Alex Jones is out of luck.
0: But privileged only covers attorney-client communications, correct?
4: Yes, that's exactly right. However, uh, some of those texts uh, that were handed over were between Alex Jones and the lawyer, we, we believe. And because they waived their right to object to the privileged nature of those documents, then uh, it's too late to do it now.
0: Would this also be considered harmless because couldn't the contents of that cell phone be subpoenaed through discovery?
4: It could, except if it were handed over uh, for discovery, it would be handed over to a special master who would filter through it and say, "Okay, this one's privileged. This is not privileged. If something clearly is protected as private, confidential stuff between Jones and his lawyer, uh, the the judge or the special master would remove that before handing it over to the family's lawyer.
0: So finally, whether it's the potential criminal charges for perjury or these orders for compensatory and punitive damages. How much trouble is Alex Jones in?
4: Well, he's in a heap of trouble uh, because it's just not over yet. Not only is he owing 50 million bucks to the one family, and of course he could get it turned around on appeal, but I wouldn't count on that since he defaulted. He really didn't have a right to object to the uh, claims at trial. But now he's looking at two more families, and you know the betting would have to be they're going to get kind of similar results. Uh, not too many juries are going to feel sorry for Alex Jones, who now has admitted that he... he agrees it wasn't a fake uh, that the, the children actually were killed so between that and uh, and the possible criminal charges of uh, perjury i mean supposedly he's worth upwards of 200 250 million dollars maybe he can uh, make sure fancy lawyers fight like tigers for him for years but i wouldn't want to be in his shoes right now
0: all right royal oaks abc news legal analyst thank you so much for your time and insight you bet we have to take another quick break but when we come back more fallout from the fall of roe v wade when the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. Fallout beyond access to abortion care now that Roe v. Wade has been overturned by the U.S. Supreme Court. The drugs often prescribed for abortions have more uses than just terminating a pregnancy. Frances Steed Sellers is covering it for the Washington Post, and she spoke with Taylor Van Seis. Mexotrexate
3: is a drug that uh, many of us have probably heard since Roe was overturned. It really illustrates this complication. So let's start with that, Frances. Beyond prescription for inducing an abortion... Why else would a person be prescribed methotrexate?
5: Yeah, this is a drug that has a very wide range of applications. So it's used in chemotherapy for many forms of um, cancers, including blood cancers. It's used for autoimmune diseases. Um, uh, So people with rheumatoid arthritis might be familiar with it. It's used for lupus, for Crohn's disease. Um, The list goes on. So it's a drug that's used in many, many ways um, in different forms and at different dosage levels. But One use that it has proved very effective for in injection form and in a fairly high dose is to stop an ectopic pregnancy. An ectopic pregnancy is one that starts outside the uterus, so not in the womb, it's elsewhere. It's never viable. That uh, that cluster of cells can never become a baby, Um, and it can be life-threatening to a mother because it can cause a fallopian. It's often in the fallopian tube. It can cause the tube to burst, and for um, a hemorrhage. So here's a drug that's used very specifically for ectopic pregnancies but has many other uses as well and so has fallen right in the middle of this controversial issue.
3: So then if we take an example of, say, a patient in Indiana where they just implemented a new abortion ban in the last uh, couple of days or any other state with a strict ban, are the drugs banned? Are doctors unable or unwilling to prescribe? Where does this drug like methotrexate fall?
5: Right. It's a little bit more complicated than that. So some pharmacy chains and and um, we'll talk more broadly than just Indiana because this has been happening in other states. But some pharmacy chains have put out um, alerts to their pharmacists that they must make sure that the drug is not being used. Um, for abortion. This is not just methotrexate, it's also mysoprotal, a- another drug that has, that other, has other uses, including completing a miscarriage. If a woman has a a, a pregnancy a stop, there's no heartbeat, and she needs to um, get rid of the tissue in a safe way. That's one of the drugs that can be used by that. So pharmacists are, are in this tricky position of having um, to prescri- to sorry, to dispense these drugs. Um, but to make sure before doing so that they're not being used for abortive purposes.
3: And there are, you know, any number of medications that could cause birth defects or loss of pregnancy. Presumably that would also be in the back of these doctors' minds now in states where abortions have been banned.
5: So that's a really key point, I think, that a lot of drugs beyond these can cause severe birth defects. And if you're a doctor prescribing those drugs, and this becomes ethical as opposed to probably felony issues, um you have to really figure out with your patient that they won't become pregnant because there is not the, the backup of abortion should they become pregnant. Now, most doctors will go through that counseling, but as we all know, accidental pregnancies happen. Um, and when there isn't abortion um, for very severe birth defects, that's a problem. Now, there can be ways of regulating this. If you look at a drug like Accutane, which is a drug used for very severe acne, it's actually regulated by the FDA so that before taking that drug, a patient goes through a counseling process and also has to produce negative pregnancy tests. There is no such program in existence for methotrexate, for example.
3: Francis Steed Sellers with us on Northwest News Radio, reporter for The Washington Post, and you can read much more about all of these complications around medications that can be used for abortion or many other maladies online at WashingtonPost.com. Francis, thank you.
0: And that's Taylor Van Syce. We have to take another quick break, but when we come back, white supremacy is on the rise, online when the Northwest Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. Finally this week, white supremacist groups still have a presence on Facebook and Facebook still makes money off of that traffic despite a ban on such groups and content. Naomi Nix has taken a closer look for the Washington Post and spoke with Frank Lindsay. Now are these pages uh, or groups for that matter, are they they difficult to find or are they kind of openly defying the hate speech ban?
6: They're not that hard to find if you know what the groups are. So I Um, you know, myself went searching for a few of them. There was a, um, you know, one called the Southern Brotherhood, um, you know, where it was riddled with swapsukas and expressions of white power, um, you know, which is clearly in violation of Facebook's terms of service.
0: And how is Facebook able to make money
3: off these groups?
6: You know, there were a few different interesting parts about the report. Um, One of them was, Um, Facebook was actually serving ads when users would go to search for some of these groups. And so, you know, you say you were to type in uh, the Ku Klux Klan, um, Facebook would, would serve you an ad, um, you know, and often those ads were related to um, black churches. And so they weren't, you know, like groups who were necessarily looking to find people or to reach people who are interested in white supremacy. And what one of the activists sort of made the point is, like, that's actually kind of dangerous, right? Like, um, giving people who are interested in white supremacy so actively um, more information about, you know, black churches could could lead to, to unfortunate consequences.
0: Has Facebook responded to this analysis from the Tech Transparency Project?
6: So they say, look, we've, we have a fix. To fix the monetization issue, in particular, um, they say they are you know now that the report is out and after the Washington Post contacted them um, that they're going to issue a comprehensive review of um, you know how they might be serving ads against searches for groups and and individuals that are banned on their platform. And then they say they're looking into this other issue, which is Facebook was actually auto-generating pages for white supremacy groups. Um, so when a user were to list, like, um, an employer, an interest, and put it as a specific white supremacy group, Facebook's automated systems would just generate a, pay, a profile page if there wasn't one. Um, and so uh, Facebook says they're looking into that problem as
0: well. All right. Thank you for that information. Naomi Nix at The Washington Post. You can read more about the story, of course, at WashingtonPost.com. And that's Frank Lindsay. And that will do it for this episode of the Northwest Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows, such as Northwest News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and Puget Sound Now with Bill Swartz. All are available at nwnewsradio.com or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogelup. Thank you for listening, and have a good week.